I think we need an intervention. Yeah. Finally. <laughs> Okay, so uh, good morning and happy evening. Is it morning? And it's not really morning. Uh, happy nether week. Happy nether week. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've arrived once again here to the dude. Check out this song. Uh, I hope everybody out there is doing good because I'm feeling especially fine this day. How about you, Ian? I'm doing pretty good, but this episode might change that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, don't don't always start that. At least, uh, at least let me. Okay, here. I'm going to have a drink of my beer here first before that happens then. How fitting for the episode, honestly. <laughs> yeah, there's one thing about Towns Van Zandt, and he didn't write happy songs. <laughs> no, he sure he sure did not. Uh, if I wasn't a big fan of like folk music, just the music we listened to to get ready today would have uh, really depressed the shit out of me. <laughs> well, you kind of like that depressing folk shit. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm already like, I like depressing music, so it was all right for me, but I, I don't know. Even <laughs> I was like, damn, dude. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, is you call them folk. Most people call them country. Oh, yeah. I guess it, it, he does ride that line pretty. Yeah. Well, I think a big part of it's kind of the backing band that was in the studio with him. Like, I think everybody kind of gave him a twang. Yeah, I could see that. There was a lot of twang, especially with like the more instrumentation uh, stuff that I think went later in his career. Yeah, he definitely got a like. little bit more country later in his career. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not really even sure. So, I mean, I guess we should always begin where we should begin, huh? Well, this episode, I'm going to start with a Towns Van Zant quote. Oh shit! I don't envision a very long life for myself. Like, I think my life will run out before my work does. You know, I've designed it that way. <laughs> Wow. All right. Designed it that way, huh? Starting it off on a yeah. real positive note All right, there. All right, town shit. You're not fucking around even right, right from the beginning. Okay. And John Towns Van Zant was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1945, the son of a prominent oil man, and the family would move around a lot. Towns Van Zant would describe his nomadic childhood, and I quote, I lived in Fort Worth till I was eight, Midland till nine, Billings, Montana till 12, Boulder, Colorado till 14, Chicago till 15, Houston till I was 21, and then I started traveling. <laughs> and then I started traveling. <laughs> okay, this guy's a badass already. I mean, he is the son of a rich oil man. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and actually, he was the third great-grandson, like great-great-great, yeah, yeah, of Isaac Van Zant a prominent leader of the Republic of Texas, and at one point in his life was appointed Chardé Affairs. I actually had to have a little uh, pronunciation on that <laughs> one. <laughs> to the United States, and he was appointed by Sam Houston in 1842. His great-great-great-grandfather was? Yeah, and Isaac would die while running for governor five years later. And there is a Van Zant County 
about 50 miles east of Dallas. Yeah. And it's actually named for this guy. Oh, that's fucking awesome. So, <laughs> so, so the, there was a whole county named after his great, great, great grandfather. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, prominent way to start. <laughs> Son of a rich oil man. Son of a rich oil man who literally has a county named after his great, great, great grandfather. Yep, that's, that's pretty, that's, that's some, that's some, uh, some that's pride some, to start with. That's some family clout right yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> and so... Succeeding generations of Isaac, the Van Zants were like civil leaders that would build up Fort Worth from like a dusty cow town to the transportation hub of the New West. Oh, transportation hub. That's a big thing in this era. And so back to Towns Van Zant, when he was nine years old, he saw Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show and asked his father for a guitar for Christmas. Fuck yeah. After promising to learn Frowlin, an old like country song, uh huh, he got one. He played that song for his father, and music became his passion from there on. Hell yeah, that's fucking awesome. And so, like I said, they moved around a lot, but, you know, he seemed like he was a pretty happy kid. He wrestled, played baseball and football, and apparently loved to play practical jokes. I couldn't find any examples of that, but... But that was it, something he was it known was some, for. Yeah, something he was known for. So he's, yeah, just a general lighthearted guy. Yeah, in fact, his sister Donna would say... He was a happy-go-lucky, funny kid. <laughs> Which is really funny with the, like, the music that he makes. We already kind of touched on that a yeah, little bit. Yeah, it's but really dark. Yeah, exactly. It's really sad. Especially his song, Nothing, which we will talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other thing is, is he was really smart. His first wife, Fran, would say, Towns was a genius. They couldn't test him because his IQ was so high, way above 140. Wow. It wasn't, but it was pretty fucking high. We'll get to that later. <laughs> and so in high school, Towns Van Zant would do his first public performance. He was received well, first little taste of glory. His peers loved him. But after a sophomore year of high school in Chicago, Towns would yearn for some stability, and he'd ask if he could attend the Shattuck Military Academy, a boarding school, in order to ensure that he would stay put for his junior and senior year. Wait, so he asked to be put in a boarding school? That's what it said. I don't know if he asked. He probably was told. <laughs> yeah, either way, that's pretty funny. It's even funnier if he asked, though. Like, no, no, I'm not. I'm, I, I'm traveling and just being way too crazy here. I could. could I I'm playing way too many practical jokes, guys. Yeah, would you guys send me to boarding school already? God. And at Chattuck, he would excel in athletics and in fairly well in school. He's popular with his classmates. And even liked by some of the faculty. But he'd kind of have a, you know, a little rebellious streak. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he would often get high by sniffing glue. <laughs> and the real rebellious act of growing his hair past the allowed lengths. Uh-oh. Oh, my God. Why would you do that? Oh, my God. What a fucking rebel. Degenerate. What, what an asshole. Yep. Well, I mean, at a military academy, that's probably an even bigger deal. <laughs> yeah, probably. But still, I mean... Oh, no, your hair's slightly longer than it should be. It's, yeah. It's not a quarter of an inch. <laughs> and I guess he was also known as something of a hedonist. He would indulge in whatever make him feel good. He'd often gamble with other students in his room, you know, stuff like that where he would just, like, get right up to the line of the rules, not quite cross it, but, you know, like, doing kind of stuff like that. Where yeah, it's he like, was a thrill seeker. Yeah, gambling in school, I don't know. You know, that yeah, that kind of shit. Yeah, they... 
It wasn't obviously outright like uh, I don't know breaking of the rules. Yeah, it was. It was. It was definitely skirting them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it was against the rules to gamble in your room, but it wasn't like he's not out there stealing or anything like that. Right, and he you know do more talent shows and he'd keep playing guitar and he'd start you know falling in love with Shakespeare plays and sonnets and he would start writing poems of his own. Oh, that's a slippery slope or a slippery soap yep. before you go down. <laughs> Did you just say slippery soap? Slippery soap. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, that is a slippery soap. Is you, you write a poem and then suddenly you're writing song, sad folk country songs. And yeah, you can't you can't read Shakespeare without fucking your life up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And now here's the thing, though. Towns was basically being primped to be like a Texas senator or lawyer. He'd end up getting enrolled at the University of Colorado at Boulder in 1962. He'd write poetry, play guitar, you know, for fun. Didn't take it like super serious. And he'd listen to records by Lightning Hopkins and Hank Williams. Hell yeah. Two amazing musicians right there. Two very, very good musicians. And he'd end up meeting a girl named Fran Peterson. Oh, shit. And the two of them would start dating. Hell yeah. But this was also kind of the time in his life where he'd start to show kind of the first signs of bipolar disorder. Uh Uh-oh. You know, with occasional bouts of deep, dark depression, he would seclude himself from society and just drink his life away. And then following the periods of depression, he would exude confidence and party wildly. (laughs) Yeah, up and down and up and down. Be the center of attention, you know? No middle ground. That's a crazy thing about bipolar, like, there's no middle ground. Yeah, exactly. They can't have that that calmness or that center. They always got to be an extreme in one direction. And during the middle of the semester, Towns had a friend forge a letter from his parents to the university, allowing him to drop out of school. He'd take a two-week trip to Oklahoma, but then return to Boulder. And a doctor, I'm assuming it was like some sort of family friend or something, would alert his parents of his absence. And due to their knowledge of his mood swings and drinking habits, they made an impromptu trip to Boulder, realizing he was suffering from some sort of mental disorder. They took their son back to Houston and placed him in the Titus Harris Clinic for psychiatric evaluation and treatment. Oh my God, no. Are they, they're not going to give him shock therapy again, are they? Like the other guys? No, they would never do that. Oh my God. It's too many episodes in a row of people getting shock therapy this season. <laughs> It was very popular in the 60s. I guess so. (laughs) Hippies, LSD, shock therapy. Come on now. (laughs) It's the trifecta. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. This will teach him. And so he was hospitalized in March 1964 and underwent much psychiatric evaluation. During this evaluation, he would score a 134 on his IQ test. Wow. Yeah, so still really fucking high. Not above 140, but still really, really high. I'm sure, like, testing IQs is a very complex thing anyways. Like, I don't think there's a exact, or scoring is so exact like that. I think where you take the test probably has to do with what your scoring is, too. Yeah, I've always been afraid to take an IQ test, so I never have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it works. Well, I, I've actually only taken, like, those, those like, cheap online ones, and those don't actually tell you anything because anybody with half a brain can score a million IQ. <laughs> Right, and they're extremely, like, you know, varied in one direction yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. There must be, like, some sort of scientific analysis behind it. but Oh, there is 100% a lot of scientific analysis around it, but there is not a lot of room to talk about that right now. 
He would be noted as having schizophrenic reaction, schizoaffective type depression. Now, his doctor, Grace Jameson, oversaw his treatment and had stated that he was not schizophrenic, but was labeled with those types of symptoms due to the lack of knowledge on mental disorders at the time. His doctor would say, now we would call a bipolar with psychotic features. And in order to treat Town's mental state, he underwent shock therapy. God damn it, I fucking knew it. <laughs> this is the third time this season. Why do they keep shocking these poor kids? <laughs> Don't go to a mental hospital in the 60s. Don't do it. Jesus. Oh, my God. I just like the who, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest sort of situation just always plays through my mind. Like, why? You're just obviously making it worse. Well, and I read various different accounts of what kind of therapy it was. And there were some, like, one of them claimed that it was, like, super fucked up where they would, like, purposely put him in, like, a coma and stuff like that. And it would, you know, just completely, like, put him out of it and shit. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, I don't know if it was true because I couldn't find an exact, like, way they did it. But most of them just said shock therapy. But there was some other stuff that there was claimed where it was just, like, what the fuck? Yeah, some pretty extreme claims. Yeah. Like, some stuff that, that they pretty much stopped using in the 50s was claimed. Oh, wow. The worst part is if if I was li- or if I lived through the sixties, I would one hundred percent end up in one of those fucking places. <laughs> I know it. I just know it it's in my soul. They've been giving me a lobotomy or some shit. <laughs> and now my co-host. Uh, yeah. Welcome, Blair. Hey, God. Dude, Dude ch- music stuff. Dude, check out music, bro. <laughs> Uh, it's not funny. I mean, we are literally not making fun of anybody who got a lobotomy. Because honestly, as far as like terrible, 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 terrible crimes against humanity, messing with somebody's brain is up there. Like that is right below brutally murdering somebody. Right. Like that is so, so just barely not murdering them. And have you read like about some of the techniques that uh, on how they would do the lobotomy? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I've, I have read way oh, too much about it. Like and when they go up it, through the nose and shit. I, I just don't want to. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Pat's about ready to puke. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I unfortunately watched some pretty in-depth documentaries about how they did like the the prefrontals and and like you know the eye socket lobotomies and stuff like that and uh yeah it's no. it's pretty bad yeah when they say yeah you you can leave in an hour with a couple of black eyes and that'll that's all it's going to be a totally uninvasive like procedure. a couple of black eyes and no personality yeah and they send your <laughs> wife home a fucking zombie or whatever because she because <laughs> she cried twice like fucking shit people and so Fran would say it was a time when they used extreme measures for things like that. He seemed okay to me. He seemed like a normal college student. She must have not known many college students. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. People like that are usually pretty good at hiding it with people that don't know them regularly. Yeah, but I mean, this was someone he was dating. I mean, you'd think they would kind of catch on. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's a fairly good point. Or maybe they were just get, passing out lobotomies because the guy was like, I'm going to be a folk singer, guitar player. And they're like, oh, no, you aren't. You're the, being a senator. <laughs> Take the, the Oprah shot of uh, lobotomies. Yeah. And a lobotomy for you and a lobotomy for you. <laughs> we need you to be a governor. Give him the shock therapy, ladies and gentlemen. Just give him just whatever voltage will make him a governor. Well, and so after leaving the hospital, Towns could not remember much of his childhood experiences. Some believe it's from the shock therapy, but as Dr. Jameson 
insists it was more likely to be from his alcoholism or a purposeful suppression to gain sympathy from his family. <laughs> so, so either the shock therapy took away a bunch of his like childhood memories, or he just just pretended that he didn't have childhood memories after he got out. I guess I didn't seem like his childhood was that bad, other than the fact that they moved around a whole lot. Yeah, but like I don't know, it's completely reasonable to for them to I don't know lose some like late late long term memories if you just gave him shock therapy. If you're shocking someone's brain. Yeah, <laughs> those memories were probably fried in there, never to be found again. Yeah, file not found. And I I I totally could see the doctor being like, that is not something that could happen. He's with making, his arms crossed. Yeah, he's <laughs> making it up. And the guy's like, I just can't remember Christmas when when I was five. Like, why would I make that up? <laughs> I, I don't remember it, when my dad gave me my guitar. Yeah. I just remember having it. <laughs> Jeez, I don't know. Like, obviously, it could go one way or the other, but it's that just sounds like some some classic fifties and sixties psycho stuff. And so, in the spring of nineteen sixty five, Towns would enroll in the University of Houston as a pre law student and pledge to a fraternity. Yay! Yay! He and Fran would marry in August, and soon number after one, the, number one, and soon after that, he tried to join the Air Force. I I caught that tried to. <laughs> Fran would say he wanted the adventure. He wanted the discipline. Yet the doctors at UTMB wouldn't let him go, calling him an acute manic depressive who has made minimal adjustments to life. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Sorry, sir. We can't have you flying fighter planes because we you are kind of weird. <laughs> you are actually not allowed to bomb people. Yep. <laughs> Mainly because of the shock therapy. Yeah, that probably didn't help. It was probably he probably didn't treat it because when he the last time he acted out from it, it was, they gave him shock therapy for yeah. it. I wouldn't be trying to treat nothing after that. I'd be playing it real down low. I'm totally normal, guys. Don't even worry about it. Zap, zap. <laughs> You keep a cattle prod with you at all yeah. times now. Don't worry. I got my own my own treatment. I'm, I'm self-medicating. <laughs> I'm having an episode. Hold on. Buzz, buzz, buzz. And I'm going to throw once again the caveat here. We're not making fun of anybody with like mental like problems or anything like that. No, that we're is, making fun of the treatment itself. Yeah, the, the, the extreme treatment in the 50s is just so asinine to me that I honestly can't do anything but laugh or else I'll just be really angry about yeah. it. And yeah, honestly, if we don't make fun of it, it's going to make us really sad. Yeah, exactly. And you guys, the, the episode quality goes down drastically the more angry or more sad that we get. So let's just keep it nice and happy and smiley except for the, you know, the fact that it is very fucked up that they gave that guy shock therapy for probably no good reason. And his sister Donna thought that the treatment he got was a little too much. She'd say, you and I would hear about a starving person and go about our lives, but it would just break his heart. Aww. Fran would remember him happily giving his money away and once bringing a homeless man home to their Houston apartment. So he's just super kind-hearted, like uh, probably more so after the treatments. It just seemed like he couldn't deal with the problems of the world, and we'll get deeper into that later on too. Yeah, so it, I, I, that, that's kind of really sad because so everything really affected him a lot more. It's obvious. oh yeah, and after years of playing guitar for himself and his friends and family, he decided it was time to start playing in front of strangers. Nice. He started hanging out at Houston's Jester Lounge, where he listened to and then opened for artists like Hopkins, Hell Lightning yeah. Hopkins. Guy Clark, Jerry Jeff Walker, 
some Doc Watson, maybe? Fuck yeah. So, I mean, those are three names that I recognize. I don't know if you recognize Jerry Jeff Walker. Yeah, I didn't recognize the middle two, but I I had the first and last one. And he would start writing songs at first novelty songs like Fraternity Blues. And Towns would later tell an Austin DJ that when he heard Bob Dylan's The Times They Are A-Changin', he decided, this is what I'm going to do. So many people, it's it's either it's Dylan, the Beatles, or Elvis. They, right. they, they hear them play, and they're like, <laughs> fuck, I'm doing it. Well, and I think that album is when he decided to start going dark, too. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we talked about a, a particular joining of a fraternity, and then also a, a song that I know is very inspired by Woody Guthrie. Oh, yeah. So, uh so, first dude, check out this song. What? Whoop, whoop. Finally got to it. Did I just did I just call it right before it happened? Fraternity Blues. Yep. <laughs> I, I have like the, the, the dude, check out this song, third or sixth sense now. No, third sense. Third I, sense? I, I smell it coming. I don't <laughs> know. Smell, am I, I sweating or something? <laughs> like, like some pheromones are coming off yeah, me. Oh, Ian, I know what Ian's doing. Yeah, exactly. It's just just that sniff in the air. It smells like, dude, check out this song in here. <laughs> Let's see if you can guess when the next one's coming up. Yeah. I, well, I won't be using smell this time. You know, he was still studying to be a lawyer at this time. While he was starting to play live? Yeah. That's pretty awesome. But in January 1966... Town's father died at the age of 52. He decided to leave school for good, turn his back on his past, and live a musician's life. And his, he probably got some money when his dad died, so he was probably able to support himself. Probably. <laughs> that probably helped. But he would hit the road playing shows with uh, Walker and Clark, and he'd begin to write serious songs. One of the first songs he wrote was Waiting Around to Die, kind of a roadmap to his adult years, with lyrics like, I guess I'll keep gambling, lots of booze and lots of rambling. It's easier than just waiting around to die. And he purposely set out to live life by those words. He'd tell Fran, you were living a life you sang the blues and hadn't lived them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and let's be honest, other than, you know, some shocky-shocky stuff happening, he lived a pretty, you know well life you know like yeah he lived he did live pretty good all except for the you know the shock therapy yeah the the shocky shocky part in 1967 towns went to nashville where a tape he made had caught the attention of kevin eggers yeah it must be eggers e-g-g-e-r-s yeah eggers and kevin was looking for acts for his fledgling independent label poppy records and so the following year Eggers would record and release Town's first album for the sake of the song. Hell yeah. And it'd have like Waiting Around It Down, It To Come To Valley, songs like The Velvet Voice and All Your Young Servants. But he would have to continue to play as many live shows as he could because the album didn't sell. Oh, it wasn't very uh, popular when it came out? No, definitely not. Yikes. Which is surprising because he's really talented. Well... Let's just say this one, they probably put too much instrumentation on top of everything he did. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't mixed well or yeah. it didn't come through very well. That we'll, sucks. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay. And while this was all going on, Towns and, and his wife, Fran, had been separated since the beginning of 1968. But they would reunite in the middle of the year. And that summer, they found out they were due to have their first child. Aw. J.T. Van Zant was born in April 1969. 
And JT's arrival, like it always seems to do at first, created some very peaceful, happy relationship moments between the two. But like what is very common in these stories, didn't stay that way for long. Yeah, put pressure on the relationship and then... Well, Towns began using heroin. (laughs) Oh, no, that's not what you do, Towns. Never a good life choice. Oh, come on. And once Fran realized that he was using drugs in the house with the infant in the home, she left. Well, yeah. And so by mid-1969, they were permanently separated. Aw, God damn it, Towns. In 1969, though, same year when they got permanently separated, he'd end up traveling to Nashville, Tennessee to record two albums that some consider to be his best. The first one, Our Mother of the Mountain, was released in April 1969, and it'd have tracks like Here to Love Me, Snake Mountain Blues, Our Mother of the Mountain, St. John the Gambler, and Tecumseh Valley. Oh, yeah, I like that St. John the Gambler. That was good. I knew you would like that one. I put that one on purposely for you. Uh Uh-huh. And so this brings me to my next dude. Check out this song. We got Snake Mountain Blues, Our Mother of the Mountain, St. John the Gambler. Yeah, three very, very nicely rocking tunes. And by that, I mean very sad songs. It'll make you sad in a good way. Well, and I didn't have time to play this one for you, but Our Mother of the Mountain is actually just like a really cool jam. It's not like super, super sad. But it, I mean, it's not happy per se, but it's happy for Towns Van Zandt. Yeah, it's comparatively happy. (laughs) Yeah. And sometime in 1969, Towns was in Lubbock, Texas, hitchhiking to Houston. In his backpack was crammed with copies of Our Mother the Mountain, but no clothes. He's picked up by a man named Joe Eli. He'd end up giving Eli a a copy of the record. And that night, him and a buddy stayed up listening to it and learning to play the songs. He'd say, every song seemed like a dream. They were painted dark shades of blue. Wow. In September 1969, he released his self-titled album. This would actually include newer versions of four songs from his first album for the sake of the song, mainly because he was very unhappy with the lush production of the compositions. Yeah, so he'd br- he brought back the ones he wanted to do a better version of. Yeah, and he'd strip them down. And these remakes would include Waiting Around to Die, which is the version you want to listen to. Yep. I'll Be Here in the Morning. Although on the first album, it was called I'll Be There in the Morning. For the sake of the song and Quicksilver Daydreams of Maria. This would also have the mining ballad song Lungs and a song called None But the Rain. And so this brings me to my next dude. Check out this song, Waiting Around to Die. You have to listen to this version, though. It's, it's fantastic. This version is way more stripped down than the first, and it actually makes sense. Like, this is the way I think he wanted people to hear it. I'll be here in the morning, Lungs, which... Between that and Waiting Around to Die, when I discovered these two songs, I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, seriously. like I, That's the way I felt because this is like so down my my main like thoroughfare of what I listened to, and I had never listened to any of his music until we were doing this episode. Well, that's what surprised me because I put him on the list, and you're like, okay. Yeah, because I had no idea who yeah. the fuck it was. <laughs> and then, of course, we got None But the Rain. None But the Rain. None But the Rain. It's a really cool name kind of got like a love ballady type sound to it you know but it's a you know real calm peaceful song it, nice. i dig it yeah exactly it's about number number the rain in 1970 the divorce was finalized and this would usher in just a period of extreme substance abuse yeah and really him 
kind of abusing people, too. Oh, yeah, started to become kind of an asshole. Yeah, a friend remembers when he was drinking, he'd needle people mercilessly. He'd just go after someone, and he'd smell blood. He wouldn't let up, sometimes until the poor guy, or yes, the poor girl was in tears. Oh, wow, so he'd just start fucking with something, buddy, when he was uh, feeling the urge? Yep, he'd start drinking and just start fucking with someone. Wow, that's the fucking worst, man. Nothing's worse than like a drunk guy like targeting you like specifically. That is that is the worst feeling. Yeah, it is not only the worst feeling, but it's also just like obnoxious yeah. as fuck. But to the point where he'd put people in tears. I mean, that's just, he, that's just bullying bullshit. Yeah. And so in 1971, he would release his fourth album called Delta Mama Blues. Oh yeah. And this one would take a slight different turn from the other ones. The other ones were more like Appalachian folk and kind of country music inspired. But this one would be a little bit more like blues. And this one would actually be recorded in New York. Like, this is the his first time recording out of Nashville, pretty much. Oh, shit. But this would have some kick-ass songs, like some songs like Rake, Nothing. And that's my next dude check out the song, which is Raking Nothing. Like, Yeah, that's, I mean, those are fantastic tunes. Those are really, you should listen to them maybe twice. And if you're in a really depressed mood, really listen to nothing. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it is seriously like you could tell that he wrote this when he was in like probably one of the saddest moments in his life at the time. Yeah, it's, it, honestly, for Towns Van Zant, he's really one of those artists where if you're having one of those really terrible days and you just want to stare out the window while it's raining and make it yourself feel even worse, like, you know. Pour a couple <laughs> drinks yeah, for yourself. Yeah, you know, yeah, day drink and have a pity party. Towns Van Zant <laughs> music is the perfect. You just turn it on, you can sit there and stare out like, oh. Sold. Every, I want to do that every day. Yeah, everything sucks. <laughs> oh. Not saying that's the only thing you can do with music, but if you're doing that, this is the best. And you might feel a little bit better about yourself after you listen to a few of these songs. <laughs> you have to listen to these songs. You're like, wait, my problems ain't that bad. First, listen to this episode, though. Then listen to those songs, and it'll cheer you right up. Yeah, we really hope that you don't feel that way because of the episode. Jeez. Come on, Ian. <laughs> I hope we cheer you up. Even when we're talking about Towns Van Zandt. And shock therapy, apparently. Which has become a theme for this season. Yeah, well, I mean, it's better than the season or the themes we had previously because every other st- uh, season's theme was, was racism. Yeah, racism. <laughs> so at least racism got, or sexism. Yeah, exactly. Well, at least we have you know something different, but it turns out to be manually altering people's biology via shock therapy. <laughs> but of course, his struggles—you know—they wouldn't go away. He'd end up feeling responsible for the murder of a friend of his. Named Leslie Joe Richards. While recording in Los Angeles, Richards had volunteered to go back to the condo to pick something up for Towns. She attempted to hitchhike to the studio and was murdered by her driver. Oh. Yeah, Towns felt extreme grief and responsibility for the situation and returned to Texas. Damn, that's fucking harsh, man. Right? Can you imagine? Like, yeah, yeah, just go. Yeah, just go get it. And... She's gone and never comes back. You would never forgive yourself. Like, oh, you would just carry that. Uh, I don't know. If if it happened to me, I don't know if I could, like, deal with that. That that would be some fucking, some serious weight. Right? Like, and he already had a drinking and drug problem, too. Yeah, seriously. Oh, man, that is so fucked up. Don't hitchhike. 
And so he was back in Texas, you know, where his son, JT, who was almost three years old at this point, was living. You know, and him being on the road and him being a drunk, there wasn't really much of a relationship there at the time. Yeah. And on one particular occasion, Townsend scheduled an afternoon time to come to his ex-wife's house to spend time with his son. He'd never make it there, though, as he was rushed to the hospital for a heroin overdose. Oh, great. That's extra classy, Towns. I mean, that's the best time to be doing a whole bunch of heroin is right before you go see your son. Well, I mean, if you're an addict and something like your friend getting murdered happened to you. Yeah. I mean. It does put you over it the would, edge. It would definitely kind of push it towards that needle in the bottle. Yeah, it's, it's fucked up. And his ex-wife, Fran, would say about him, living was painful to Towns. There was too much suffering in the world. Towns just didn't know how to live in this world. I personally always believe that he had a chemical imbalance. If we could have ever found the right diet or the right pill or the right something, he could have been okay. It would come on so suddenly, like there would be just neurons flying off balance that would drive him to some other place. Because when he was good, he was just incredible. He was one of the kindest, gentlest, smartest, most compassionate people you could ever know. But I couldn't understand why he was so dependent on it. It was more than alcoholism. It was something else. It was like something just couldn't fire right in his body. Oh, wow. That's probably one of the longest quotes I've done in this uh, in this show. But I felt like it was right to put it in. Yeah, I mean, it really does like... I don't know. It solidifies the situation in a very eloquent way because it is very true. Like, you know, when. Well, especially with bipolar disorder, you know, when you're up, you're like the best person to be around. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. But it's it's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. So in 1972, he'd end up releasing High, Low and In Between. You know, this was the album that he was recording in L.A. when his friend got murdered. And this album would have what Towns himself considered to be one of the, one of his most well-written songs, To Live Is To Fly. And it also have other songs called You Are Not Needed Now and Blue Mountain Ridge. So the next do check out the song, To Live Is To Fly and Blue Mountain Ridge. Oh, yeah. And that's why I purposely made you listen to uh, To Live Is To Fly, because he considered this to be his most well-written song. It's a, it is a fantastic song. Honestly, one thing that he has is, like, really good average quality. He doesn't really dip very low. His his quality is really good and really solid song to song. Yeah, he's he's a very consistent writer, especially like around this era though too. And so also in nineteen seventy two, he'd release another album called The Late Great Towns Van Zant. <laughs> he'd release an album called The Late Great while he's still alive. Yeah. And people would think, you know, because of his depression and his adventures in manic frenzy. You know, a lot of people took this literally, but Eggers would say it was a goof on the non-existence of his career. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes well, sense too. To me, it makes a lot of sense, but I don't know if you knew him back in that time. Like, you'd be like, "Wait a second, what are you? Yeah, what are you planning? What's going on here?" Well, and this album would feature his two most covered songs. I think it's Poncho and Lefty, but it's spelled Pancho and Lefty. And then, if I needed you. And then it would also have songs called Sad Cinderella and kind of his more like, I don't know, more his most well-produced song at the time, Silver Ships of Andalar. 
which is an amazing song and sounds like it belongs in like a Lord of the Rings soundtrack <laughs> or really something. It really does. <laughs> it's like a very wordy Lord of the Rings song. Yeah. Uh, honestly, <laughs> it just, it sounds like a fantasy song. It really does. When I was listening to it, I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is so not like him, but it's just once again, it, amazing it worked quality. out well. Yeah. Great quality. Always. And this brings me to my next dude. Check out this song. Pancho and Lefty. That's what I'm calling it, damn it. <laughs> it's Pancho. <laughs> it drives me crazy that it's spelled like that. And Silver Ships of Andalar. Probably the two, like, two of the most solid songs on this whole list. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not my favorite, but I, I do kind of like his earlier, like, bluesy stuff and Appalachian stuff where with, like, Waiting Around to Die and Longs and Nothing. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I... <laughs> Everything that's more uh, folky is something I'm going to appreciate. But these two songs are just like technically, technically solid. And like, they're probably a good place to start with him. Yeah. I mean, music is always a good place to start. It, it doesn't really matter. With, like I said with Towns Van Zant, but from what I can tell, most of his stuff is pretty consistent. Although he does get a little more country in the later portions of his career, his uh, average is pretty high. I would consider him more of a folk musician. And so in the summer of 1973, he'd meet Cindy Sue Morgan. Oh, shit. Yeah, while on a horseback ride in Colorado. Oh, that's a romantic way to meet a lady. And of course, they'd strike up a relationship and they became inseparable over the next several years. Uh-oh. Morgan was only 15 at the start of their relationship. God damn it, Towns. He was 29. Dude. I guess he didn't. I guess he wasn't aware of her age until several months into their relationship. That doesn't make it better. I mean, well, it, once it, you find out, you'd think you'd be like, uh, no. Yeah, cool. All right. See you in like five years, lady. Make it six. <laughs> yeah. Because you lied, make it 10. <laughs> Call me when you're 30. I'll be an old man. And despite the large age gap, you know, they'd stay together for quite a while, even including a stint of serious heroin abuse while they were living in Clarksville, Texas. Morgan recalls taking care of Towns often during this time. So he had himself a little young girlfriend to take care of him when he was twacked out of his mind. Yikes. That's that's not cool, bro. And in 1976, someone named John Lomax would become his manager. Oh. Not, no, he was already dead by this point. Wait. It's a different John Lomax. It's not, uh, 1976. We did oh, this wait, episode. Yeah, that's right. John would be. <laughs> He's was, like long dead by this yeah. point. <laughs> when I saw this, I was like, wait, what? Yeah, Alan's even in his late career at this point. Yeah. So. Also in 1976, Eggers would become Towns' road manager and caretaker. And would basically and caretaker. Yeah, and would basically have this responsibility for the rest of Towns' life. Jeez. He would make sure he made it to shows, but would also attempt to keep them as healthy as he could, you know, with his substance abuse and all. Yeah. Yep. As healthy as you can with someone like that. And so the slightly less famous John Lomax devised several campaign movements to help revive Van Zant's dwindling career. He'd record two new albums. And, you know, achieve some popularity. The one I really want to talk about is Live at the Old Quarter. Because that's actually a pretty kick-ass live album where it's just him and his guitar. And he's cracking jokes and, you know, just really just playing some really awesome folk music. Hell yeah. The funny thing about this album, though, is the beginning of it starts like this. A few announcements for the people who just came in. The other people have heard it five times already, I'm sure. 
The restrooms are upstairs, payphones upstairs, pool tables upstairs, foosballs upstairs, cigarette machines upstairs. Then someone goes, now, wait, wait, wait. We're not talking about that. This week, the old quarter has Towns Van Zandt for five nights. We have them for one more night, and we're glad to have them here tonight. <laughs> and that's how the beginning of the album starts. That is pretty cool. In 1978, Towns and Morgan would get married. His son, JT would visit his father and stepmother at their home in Franklin, Tennessee, but the trip was cut short due to, you know, Towns being an asshole. <laughs> he would drink heavily and use drugs while around his nine-year-old son. He'd play mind games with him by pestering him with questions that a nine-year-old could not answer. JT would leave and, further, and it would further strain the relationship for much of his life. Great. And his mother, Fran, would state that he always had a sense of loss without his father in his life. So, to me, this that's the saddest part of the story right there. That is super fucked up. Kid just wanted to be around his dad, but his yeah. dad got too fucked up on drugs and shock therapy. Yeah, drugs and shock therapy. Can we name that? <laughs> this is the title of the yeah. season five, Drugs yeah. and Shock Therapy. There we go. <laughs> and, you know, JT and Towns wouldn't really establish any sort of relationship until he would move back to Texas in 1980. But, you know... Game is done at this point. Just yeah. let it be for a little bit. And Morgan remember the times in Nashville, pretty much the same kind of lifestyle. But there were times when Morgan would have to chain him to a tree so that he could not get any alcohol or drugs. But as soon as she unchained him, he went straight back to his vices. Wow. Chained like, to a tree. Uh, chained to a tree. Like, can you imagine someone like with dog. that amount of problems? Like a dog. Jesus. Of course, by the end of 1979, they were estranged. And Towns, in 1980, would find himself a new girlfriend, Janine Munsell. Wow, that's a terrible name. I'm glad you said that first. <laughs> <laughs> Janine Munsell. I, I just felt weird saying it. <laughs> Sounds like somebody to hang out with a drugged out crazy person. <laughs> it really does. In 1982, they'd find out that Janine was pregnant, but Towns was still married to Morgan, and so he'd have to track down her, and they'd eventually finalize the divorce in February 1983, and he'd marry Janine just several weeks later. William Van Zant was born just 10 days after their wedding. Wow. Also in 1983, Poncho and Lefty was recorded and released by Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard. It's a it's a really great version, even though it's like late like eighties, like it's or not late eighties, but it's late in their career and it's in the eighties. It's still pretty fucking good. Yeah, and this would mark the most successful song that Towns ever had in his career. Yep, and he'd end up getting royalties somewhere in the lower end of six figures. You know, reasonable for a guy who just travels around the country and it's enough drinks to keep, and plays music yeah it's enough to keep you alive for the rest of your life especially like already in your you know because it's the 80s and he was born in the 40s so he's already reaching late you know late 40s starting to be 50s yeah, and he's mid 40s about yeah. yeah and he's got the mental issues that he's having so you know not to mention drinking and heroin and electroshock <laughs> yeah. therapy yeah a hundred thousand dollars would get you a lot of electroshock therapy <laughs> and heroin man just a little cattle prod. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, doc. Just give me one more shock. I need it, man. Come on. I'm fiending. <laughs> I can't live without it. Oh, my God. That's not funny. 
It is a little funny. I was just about to say it kind of is. It is a little bit funny, but seriously, what the fuck? And so in that year, he'd end up checking himself into a rehab facility. But unfortunately, in 1983, his mother would pass away and went right back into touring and drinking and drugging. Oh, my God. That's not a good way to respond to a tragedy, man. And this started the cycle of failed stays at rehabs that he would do for the rest of his life. Oh, nice. It was just like going into rehab, getting out, relapsing, going into rehab. Yeah, got to get out, clean relapsing. for a little bit. The infinite loop of the, the never going to actually be an addict guy. Yeah, the one who never really plans on getting clean, but, you know, says he's going to. Yeah, it's just another way to appease people for the short term. I've seen it before. It is really sad. And like in this case, you can almost almost understand it. And, you know, I guess in any situation where, you know, somebody close enough that's in like a shitty situation like this and the closer you get, the more you can almost be like. I understand why they're like that. You know, you understand the circumstances. But at the end of the day, like, there's no there's no excuse to be like that. Well, it's got to be hard, though, with his given profession. You know, like, he plays in, like, bars and shit, so there's always alcohol around. So, oh, I'm I mean, sure. I'm not giving him a, a pass for it at all, but it's got to be hard. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. I was not implying that it's easy. I'm not saying just, oh, why doesn't he just not be an alcoholic? Like, that's not obviously not an option since... Clearly, his whole life biology is based on drinking. Just stop drinking, man. Just just, just put it down. It's yeah, no big deal. Just be normal, bro. And so, of course, in 1981, you know, with his life going so well, Janine was pregnant with their second child, a girl named Katie Bell. And, and she tried to keep up with Towns while he was touring, you know, and essentially be his caretaker. But with two children, she couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, that's that's not a thing. And he'd just keep touring, drinking, gambling, you know, doing all that. And it would eventually take the toll on that relationship, too. And in 1984, they would divorce. Oh, great. Despite their divorce, they would remain close. I just think she was just like, I love you, but I can't watch you do this anymore. Yeah, I care about you, but fuck you. In fact, she when he would die, she was actually the executor of his will. Yeah, so they were still that close. Yeah. But it was around this time that he'd actually become closer with his son, JT, who would actually start going out on the road with him. He'd experienced some moderate success throughout the United States and Europe in the early 90s. I think that's probably a lot to do with uh, Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard, honestly. Yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, his alcoholism, yeah, just continued throughout. Yeah. In 1996, Sonic Youth's drummer, Steve Shelley, went to great lengths to find Van Zant and record him. He would convince Towns to record a record that Shelley would put out through Sonic Youth's label, and the album would be entirely funded by Geffen Records. That's pretty cool. And so Towns agreed, and they would schedule a recording session in Memphis in December 1996. Of course, shortly before the scheduled sessions, Towns drunkenly fell down a set of concrete stairs outside of his home. He didn't know it at the time, but he broke his hip. Friends took him to their place where he stayed on the couch, unable to move, but he still wanted to record, so he had his friend and road manager, Harold Eggers, wheel him into the Memphis studio in a wheelchair. It didn't take long for Shelley to recognize that Towns was in a dire situation, and he canceled the session. A week later, Towns would finally agree to go to the hospital where the doctor said he had a, a broken hip. And after making Janine promise not to leave him there, the doctors would operate on him at one in the morning on January 1st. Oh, wow. 
1 a.m. On, Jan- on January 1st, like on New Year's. Yeah. Can you imagine, though, like how like it bad might, things it, must yeah. be going when doctors are like, you can't leave him here. We'll operate on him, but he has to fucking go. Yeah, that is Jesus. And so Janine would take him home later that day at 10 in the evening while lying in bed, nibbling on cheese and crackers, maybe some sliced apples and some roast beef with his kids, Will and Katie Bell there. He'd have a heart attack and die. Oh. On January 1st, the same day one of his musical idols had died, Hank Williams. Wow. So he actually just died like after the surgery a few hours later from a heart attack? Yep. Shit, that is... (sighs) And his neighbor would say, he told me three or four times in the last three or four years that he'd lived to be 52. That's how old he was? Died at the age of 52. Wow. He'd end up having two funerals. One was a service in North Texas town of Dido, where his father was born. And it was basically a family affair. Some of his ashes were buried under a headstone, bearing the epitaph, Two Lives to Fly. And then there was a service in Nashville, and this was basically all of his musician friends that got there. Yeah. And it grew so big that it had to be moved last minute from a funeral home to a large church. But it would have a lot of his friends there who would eulogize him and sing songs, you know. and That's awesome. Do all that kind of stuff. And before we get anywhere near the final thoughts, I got one more story for you. All right, drop it on me. And this starts with a man named Blaze Foley, who was friends with Towns Van Zandt. On February 1st, 1989, Blaze Foley would be shot and killed in the Bolden Creek neighborhood of Austin, Texas. Now... Why is this important, you might be asking me? Well, Blaze Foley was known to pawn guitars, and after pawning one of his guitars, he had to borrow Towns Van Zandt's guitar for a while. But he would eventually pawn it, and he'd keep the ticket in his front pocket for safekeeping, right? Well, he was shot with that ticket in his pocket, and, you know, Towns, wanting his guitar back, said he was going to do something about this. And so some of Blaze Foley's friends kind of concerned about what Towns Van Zandt was saying, duct taped his casket shut. And as legend goes, Towns and a bunch of his musician friends decided to dig up the body, got to his body, and that's where they found, yes, the pawn ticket so he could go get his guitar back. Oh, wow. (laughs) In the front pocket of his jacket. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if this is true, but it's kind of a legend that's out there, and you can find a kick-ass story about it on YouTube. That is is an amazing, (laughs) amazing story. I need my guitar back. I don't care if you're dead. Oh, shit. Don't pawn somebody's guitar if you borrow it. That's a jerk move. That is a dick move. But, I mean, they were friends, and Towns Van Zandt would eventually write a song for him called blazes blue oh i which, dug up your grave that's not gonna be a dude check out this song it's not that good uh it might be i guess i'd have to listen to it without listening to the rest of the towns van zandt stuff it's like it didn't hold up what well, kind of a weird rockabilly song or something i don't know it was, huh. so i couldn't get into it at the time I, I was already way too depressed from listening to the rest of his songs yeah <laughs> i was too busy sobbing And now I think it's about time, you know, after we get some grave defiling to do some final thoughts. What do you think? All right. Well, well, let's let's crack into some last thoughts here. Uh, I'll let you go first. All right. Um, Well, I mean, I'm not going to like do the reharp of uh, of don't do drugs. Don't be an asshole. Don't abandon your kids. Don't 
don't, don't, don't. What don't, I, don't do what a lot of musicians have done. Yeah, don't do all the bad stuff that, that people keep doing to their loved ones. But uh, what I'm going to go ahead and uh, just just talk about for a half a second is what is the goddamn thing with the, all of these, uh, all the shock therapy? Like, I'd seen one flew out of the cuckoo's nest. I'd, I'd heard a couple of the other, like, anthology, you know, stories about people going in and getting shock therapy and getting, like, changed, but... I had no idea like how much it influenced even popular music in the fifties and like so many of these people like received you shock mean sixties or sixties, excuse me. Uh, but so many pe- these people are receiving shock therapy on top of like all these like heavy drug doses and like, you know, like different experimental things like this is insane. And I, I was not aware that it was as prevalent as it is. And I don't know if it's just, like if if it was as prevalent like commonly as what we're like experiencing or if there's just a higher higher likelihood of like you know famous great musicians that happen to have their shit shocked out of their brain i don't know this is the sixth episode of this season and this is the third artist who's had shock therapy yeah exactly so i that's a we're on a 50 50 for our whole 60 season so far and i mean i know for a fact uh the next two have not had shock therapy well actually i don't know the next one next week's uh, but we'll have to cover that. I know the last, the last one of this season definitely did not have shock. Are you therapy. sure about that? Yes, I. I Are you sure? I'm pr- pretty sure. Now you're making me question it. I, thought <laughs> I guess I was we'll sure. find out I guess in two we'll, episodes from now. Two weeks, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to find out if Pat was right or wrong. Expect some shock therapy. Uh, it better not be. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think there's any shock therapy. Ian, get on your last thoughts. Well, I might have already talked about this somewhat with the Rocky Erickson episode, but you know, it's like if you're having mental problems and even though it is the sixties, like stop drinking and doing drugs. It's not helping. It is not helping at all. Yeah. Chemicals, chemicals definitely uh, exacerbate the situation. He wasn't schizophrenic like Rocky Erickson, but there's a lot of similarities. Like he had bipolar, which, you know, is not schizophrenic, but you know, at the time they didn't even have a name for it. Like, I think eventually they would, what, call it manic depressive before it got to bipolar. And, you know, I mean, I just learning about what it is has to be something hard to get through. And I can see where he'd want to start doing drugs again, just being so down and depressed and just not caring. But, I mean, goddamn, dude. Yeah, but if, it, you, if you suffer from the issues like this, go get some help, some modern medicine help. Yeah, and don't, especially and, in this day and yeah, age. Yeah, and be glad that your your doctor is not going to one flew over the cuckoo's nest to you because that's not a thing anymore. Thank God, Nurse Ratchet is dead. <laughs> well, and, and honestly, if you know the best way to avoid getting any sort of lobotomies or shock treatment. How do you do that? Uh, you give us five stars on social media and whatever platform you listen to this uh, podcast on, and you check out the do check out the songs and jam out to all the references that we uh, made this evening. And you definitely share it with your friends. Yeah, exactly. If you don't, you're getting shock therapy. Yeah, I, I actually, it's it's bad news for everybody out there. But if you don't share it with your friends, I do believe you're more likely to get shock therapy in fact pat will personally no i won't come over and I give you not. shock therapy he will do not he, threaten people on my behalf at he the end told of the me episode. this before we started recording okay <laughs> no i will not ian Jeez, threatening people on my on my behalf at the end of the episode don't share it with your friends and find out what happens <laughs> 
Well, this is a new approach we're taking, apparently. Uh, we, uh, forget passive-aggressive. We're just going straight aggressive. Yeah, aggressive-aggressive. <laughs> so, uh, but honestly, ladies and gentlemen, we, we do joke, obviously, but we love you and thank you for tuning in and uh, spending just another evening with us. We will see you next week with a little bit of a wacky one. Oh, it's going to be a different one for sure. <laughs> Have a good night. Bye.